0: Hey, remember restaurants on the boardwalk?
1: Yeah, uh, my favorite restaurant was definitely the Subway when you could get vegetables at Subway. Otherwise, it was just 12 inches of bread
0: and uh, some third-grade turkey meat. The problem with the Subway meat is that all of that meat came from like the British PX. So you might as well just go to the PX and make yourself... A Subway sandwich. I, I didn't know that, and I would never have gone to the
1: British PX. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't eat at the British restaurants? No, actually, I, I ate at the, uh, the the British Mess. Did I say PX? I totally meant mess. The, like You could get curry all day, yeah. every day, three meals of curry if you wanted. You could get breakfast curry, lunch curry, dinner curry. Actually, you could probably get supper curry, so four meals a day. It's amazing. Yeah.
0: The Canadian place to eat was garbage. And that's why I would reward myself every time we came into CAF, I would go get a whopper. But I had the same problem as you is that it would be like literally be two pieces of bread and this like ground meat patty because the Taliban had shut down the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan.
1: Well, you know what? That's fucking great you you got a fucking whopper in the middle of a war zone so it's pretty impressive so troop what the fuck are you
0: complaining i am about? not complaining you were
1: eating out of a fucking garbage bag the day before and now you have a
0: fucking whopper <laughs> in your mouth not only were you eating out of a garbage bag but also pooping in the, <laughs> the same ones Hi, I'm Marche, And I'm Matt. And this is a podcast called Veteran X. Each week, we're going to speak to one veteran about their transition to civilian life, their struggles with mental illness, uh, and uh, finding their place in the world.
1: So I guess it's a good time to introduce ourselves. Um, I'm a corporal retired, four years in the Canadian Army as a a SIGOP. Uh, Did Roto 5.5, spent 11 months in Afghanistan, and uh, I've been out since 2009.
0: Uh, And I'm Matt, and so I got out in 2009 as well. Uh, I was a reservist for four years with the Governor General's foot guards uh, and an infantry soldier uh, and reconnaissance patrolman with uh, 2nd Battalion Princess Patricia's. Uh, in Shiloh. I deployed on Roto 5, and my Roto overlapped with matches. So I got uh, to see him while I was there. We
1: did see each other. I keep forgetting about that. Wasn't that great? It was lovely. So we... Did we know we were going to see each other? No, we had no idea. I was sitting in Canada House. That's where it was, Canada House in CAF. And uh, sitting there, hating life, as we all do in Canada House. It's true. Waiting and longing for a home, and then... uh, one of the greatest guys I've ever met walks through the door, and,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and my face lights up, and your <laughs> face lights up, and we immediately went to the cashier, and got a bunch of money, and spent it. I think yeah. <laughs> at the American PX. Yeah, too bad, too bad there was no booze. Um, so, Matt, how long have you been out now? So I got out, uh, like I said, in uh, in two thousand nine. So it's been it's been nine years. And uh, when you were getting out. How did you feel when uh, you were leaving the Army? Uh, I think that I was excited to start a new life. I think that I was excited to get out of Manitoba and to come home. But at the same time, just the uncertainty and not knowing what I was going to do afterwards was really tough. So I'd say that it was a pretty big mix of emotions. And how was your first year on Civvy Street? So I first got out in March 2009. I moved back to Ottawa and in uh, with my friend Jen uh her parents were down south and so we lived in her place back in orleans so everything was kind of like the same again it was like coming back and like like everything in ottawa had pressed pause and then i just came back right um and so it was tough um so you work- uh, you
1: went you went to school right away right like you got out to go to school
0: yeah i wanted to go to school but i didn't know how i was going to do it so i started at carlton as a special student and just took two classes um unrelated to a degree just to see you know how well i'd do right and i mean this is when
1: you're kind of putting your life together life after the army Yeah. and uh i
0: remember you you were a bouncer right you were yeah i worked at a nightclub my cousin uh was like the head bouncer inside of this now defunct nightclub, and he hired me.
1: Right. Now, I always felt because uh, you actually got me a job as a bouncer too, that uh, there was like extra stress and pressure being security at a club and having that military aura around you. And everyone's like, oh, this guy, this guy is ex army, you know, don't mess with this guy. And then you. I put pressure on myself, like I cannot show a chink in my armor to anyone. Like I have to be the
0: baddest ass in this fucking security team. There was there was definitely a lot of like standing there with your arms crossed, looking yeah. pretty serious. Yeah, yeah, and that, I mean
1: that stress and that pressure did not help my transition at
0: all. No, uh, no, you're trying to portray. Like and to project something that you used to be, while you're also trying to find a healthy medium to become the next you, right? Moving along to uh, family relationships,
1: most of your family is here in Ottawa, right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, how was seeing them again after like a five-year hiatus?
0: It was really tough. Uh, like, like they were not really sure how to deal with me. Uh, I know that my dad really treated me with kid gloves. He knew that I'd been diagnosed with PTSD and I don't think he really knew what that meant and how to talk to me or whether or not he could ask me about, you know, my experiences. Like you come back from a trip, right? Or whatever, any life experience and everybody wants to ask you about it. So how was it? That's kind of a loaded question when it comes to Afghanistan or like to an operational tour. So, So how was your tour? Yeah you know it's like when we were you know talking about like the boardwalk like or my transition you know like it was good but it was also bad like everything's kind of a mixed bag right yeah and you don't know how to answer those questions no my mom worked for dnd so she knew what i was up to pretty much the whole time we were overseas so i think that she was just happy to have me home
1: Uh, do you want to talk about deploying now? Sure. Uh, so specifically, let's talk about your rotos, because you were on you were on one roto, right?
0: Yeah, I was on uh, roto 5, Task Force 108. Right. And uh, what were you doing there? So when I first got to Afghanistan, uh, I was with Reconnaissance Platoon. Um, I didn't get along very well with uh, the officer commanding. Um. And despite the fact that the warrant officer was really like was a really strong warrant, uh, his hands were kind of tied by the officer. And so, because I didn't get along uh, with them very well, the officer found a way to remove me about two months into the tour. So, I started off patrolling with Recky, and then I did a two week stint in uh, combat support company stores. And I ran laundry and got coffee for the Padre and did a lot of bitch work. It was probably the lowest point on my tour. That sounds fucking horrible. It was brutal. I was like, I'm literally going to get a medal for driving laundry. Like, I was so depressed.
1: Yeah, I can imagine.
0: So one night, like, yeah, you're like a warfighter, right? And then this happens to you. So one night I went to, there was a library in, in Calf. But they didn't just have books. They had like musical instruments. So I signed out a guitar. And I was sitting like on you know those like pods, like those air conditioned pods that used to sit on sit up on top of each other. They were like porta packs, but they were like Yeah. Like beside Canada House, right? Right. The ones that like they would put like you know Jim Cuddy when those guys came down and it would just reek like pot, like along those lines because these musicians <laughs> were smoking pot. <laughs> I'm so jealous at the time. <laughs> so sitting out in front of this pod playing guitar, and this guy came over to me who I'd recognized from Battalion but didn't really know who he was. He came, he comes over uh, and you know he's like kind of jam with you. He goes and gets his guitar, so we're jamming together. And he's like, hey, you're a recce guy, right? And I'm like, oh, I used to be. And he's like, don't say that. Once you're a recce guy, you're always a recce guy. Right. He's like, uh, your name's Matt. And I was like, yeah, how does this guy know? And so he walks away, and I had no idea what, what was going to happen or what was going to come of this meeting. Uh, but two days later, he had me sent out to, uh, to start patrolling with uh, 5 Platoon. Uh, the officer that we had, a uh, great guy, but uh, couldn't really nav very well, not very good with navigation. Uh, so they they put me in there to fill that gap. And so I navigated nearly every foot patrol uh, out of the combat outposts for 5 Platoon uh, for the remainder of the tour.
1: Nice. Yeah. So you didn't explain who this guardian angel was that came down and <laughs> yeah.
0: took you out of
1: uh, your fucking... And by the way, just so everyone knows, Matt is not a fucking shit pump so it, it just goes to show that stuff like this can happen to anyone this fucking low point you piss off the wrong fucking officer you piss off the wrong warrant you know it. it people aren't happy and then you you get a lull in your career for a while not everyone's fucking super soldier all the time
0: no for sure and i mean yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was a su- super low point. Um, but the guy, his name is Chris Waugh. and if you're listening, hey Chris, thanks, man, you saved my military career. He ended up becoming the regimental sergeant major at Second uh, Battalion Princess Patricia's. He's also a fellow musician, um, obviously, because that's how we met. I'll edit that out. Uh, so Chris, um, Chris was the quartermaster stores instructor. So he was basically like the warrant officer of warrant officers before the regimental sergeant major, you know? So this guy yeah. had some real power in the battle group and made it happen for me. Nice.
1: Did he ever explain to you what he saw in you? I mean, I think it's obvious, but did you ever have a conversation about why he plucked you out and threw you in there?
0: Oh, for sure. He said that, uh, you know, it would have been a, just a major waste to have me driving around laundry when, you know, I obviously had a lot to give uh, to the battle group. And yeah. Honestly, um, it, I had a more interesting tour in Fibotune than I would have had I stayed in Recky, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's pretty obvious it would
1: have been a huge waste. I mean, even if just one less meat shield out there, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let's fast forward a bit to uh, PTSD. When, when did you first realize
0: that uh, you had the trauma? I think that uh I realized that I had PTSD while I was overseas. Um I can remember sitting around uh like the common table at Zangabad and hearing over the radio uh that uh a friend of mine, um uh Roberts had died. And I can remember feeling almost nothing for it. Um, which really bothered me uh, because I know that under other circumstances um, that probably would have hit me really hard. Uh, But because it didn't hit me really hard, I knew that I was doing something to stop it from hitting me. So I knew that I was putting up like a mental block and I knew that that was something I was going to have to deal with later and um, not really fully realizing how bad that would be in the future. I kind of realized that there was going to be something up right then. Like the 9 liner came over the radio and I know I knew that I knew the guy and I chose to feel nothing for it.
1: So other than you know your worry about not really feeling anything, did it did you notice it coming out in different ways? Like I I noticed after you know, uh, a certain length of time with a lot of stress that I would not be able to fall asleep sometimes. And it felt like I I was almost drowning. Like I would gasp for air right before I fell asleep. And that's the first time I noticed something really strange going on.
0: Yeah, I had trouble falling asleep because I'd been woken up quite a bit um, to a fight. Um, So falling asleep was tough. Um, I started to withdraw from the rest of the guys and in times where we could be social I would speak pretty much only to my fireteam partner Eric Uh, or um, I would hang out with the Afghans a lot and uh, one particular sergeant that we had there or a couple of sergeants that we had there like um, Chin who's a who's a great friend of mine back in Shiloh and uh you know dan holly i would just kind of pull into myself and just hang out with those people almost exclusively
1: and did you talk to them about it or they were just you know your your support system your comfort zone that you know they didn't it didn't really matter how you felt
0: or what you were feeling they were there for you no matter what i just felt like i I could trust them and that like just kind of being gruff and and letting stuff kind of slide off was, like, okay with them. So they probably wouldn't have, you know, scratched past the surface and bothered me about it, you know? Like, with those guys, I could kind of give them a knowing glance. Like, you know, like the, like, this is fucked look? Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and
1: uh, I, I get that, too. And I think a lot of people who deal with PTSD kind of get that, you know, it feels like you don't even have the energy to say a word about it. Just no. a raised eyebrow is enough. Yeah, exactly. And you don't really want to talk about it either. No. And that's like the last thing in the world. Yeah. Um, so we can keep talking about Afghanistan or we can move forward into, uh, you know, your civilian years. But uh, how has PTSD changed your life overall
0: oh my goodness
1: Um, let's talk about your relationships first either with uh, past uh, romantic interests or family or friends probably family
0: would be the most important one i think ptsd has probably affected every single relationship that i have um, it's certainly affected my romantic relationships. Uh, I didn't think, uh, after I returned home to Afghanistan that I would ever be in a serious relationship ever again. Why I not? I didn't think that anybody would be able, uh, to love somebody like me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I love you, buddy,
1: no matter what. Oh, thanks. But, uh... <laughs> What uh, what was it that you felt broken, that you felt that you were a piece of shit, or what,
0: what specifically? I think that because there was so much unresolved stuff, I didn't really know who I was anymore. And, you know, if I couldn't love me, then nobody could love me, I didn't think. And I didn't at the time at all. I had loathed what I'd become. I... Typically, I'm like a happy-go-lucky, like joking, like friendly guy. And the way that I felt after I returned, having seen, you know, what the real world looks like and the contempt that I felt for, you know, regular society. And like, I, I couldn't go grocery shopping because if I saw somebody obese, I'd want to jack them up. Like, and this was all like outward anger and outward manifestations of how miserable i was inside but couldn't see it because i was just so wrapped up in it right you know you get to feel like you are exceptional for what you've done in your past and then you come back to regular society and you're a regular joe yeah and you don't have the same sort of support network that you had and i think largely in part like like largely uh, and in The the large part of why we're doing this podcast is to have this kind of conversation where it's like, you're not the only person that has felt this way. and You're not special. You're not special. But you are special. But you are special, but you're not special. (laughs) (laughs) And um,
1: friends. So, I mean, we've been friends this entire time and we've been going through very similar things this entire time. And I, what you were talking about before, you know, just a knowing glance and leaving each other alone, that's basically been our friendship for as long as as I can remember. Um, but
0: is, is that how you were with other people or did you just avoid other friends? No, I tried to reconnect immediately to my core group of pals that I had before I left. Um, and I think a lot of that was just in order to keep busy so that I wasn't thinking about how I was feeling or the PTSD that I had. So basically I would just line up um, friends to hang out with. So on Monday night, I'd be out with my buddy Stu. On Tuesday night, we'd go for beers. On Wednesday night, you know, I'd chill with Jen. On Thursday night, I'd get together with like Jacques and those guys and reconnect with them. You know what I mean? So I would just like completely jam my schedule to try and make up for the the three years that I lived in Shiloh, Uh, but also probably like in part because I knew that I had to reconnect and, and rebuild this social safety net.
1: So a lot of uh, a lot of guys come back, Matt, and uh, you know we're all dealing with the shit going on in our head and. Um, Sometimes we're looking for a way to vent. Sometimes we're looking for distraction. And uh, a lot of the time that means, you know, a drug. Uh, for some people, it stops at alcohol. For other people, it moves on to other things. I'm not going to ask you specifically what you did. Uh, you know, just share what you're comfortable with. But uh, what, uh, what's your experience been like?
0: I think that the the army has a lot of a has a pretty pretty big drinking culture, and I don't think that ended for me when I got out. Um, I used alcohol uh, at first and uh, and marijuana to <laughs> yeah <laughs> marijuana smoked uh, I smoked marijuana and and drank to uh, avoid the feelings that I was feeling uh, with PTSD, and um, as your problems grow. Uh, You know, you need or you crave stronger things. And, um, I'm, uh, you know, ashamed to talk about it now, to be honest with you and kind of uncomfortable, but I, uh, also, uh, used some hard drugs as well, uh, either to increase my ability to consume alcohol, um, to make things go away, uh, or on their own, uh, to kind of get through the day, uh because PTSD kind of steals joy from you and the only way that I was able to find that joy and it's very sad uh, was you know um, through uh, through drug and, and alcohol abuse
1: yeah let, let's you know what let's take a step back I, okay. I don't want you to start judging your old self that's uh, fair and uh, I mean that's not what this is about uh, you you did some things, and uh, you know at the time it probably you probably felt like you needed to do it and I completely understand that and there's probably a lot of people in that place right now where um, you know it, it gets you through the day or that's what it feels like anyway
0: look I, I felt um, I felt I felt desperate and when you're in a position where you're completely desperate, you'll reach for anything and I reached instead of like for my family and you know for the people that cared about me I reached for alcohol and drugs and it filled that void um, but it never dealt with the problem It just made it worse
1: you know everyone has a different reaction to it but you were so so under control and I mean maybe it's because I'm just completely blind uh, and don't notice the details. But to me, it seemed like you were okay
0: all the time. I'm going to be straight with you. Like, I had myself fooled. Yeah. I thought that I was okay. And it was all kind of a veneer. And it was all because of the booze and the drugs that, like, I would use that to convince myself that I was okay. And anybody with a 30,000 foot view of my life that would have been privy to, you know, my innermost thoughts and feelings would have known that there was a problem. And I had myself convinced that I didn't have a problem. And I had a problem.
1: How are your dreams? It sounds
0: like you're going to have some messed up dreams. I wake up in the dream, unable to find the equipment that I need to do the job that I have to do. So I would, we'd be going on patrol and I wouldn't be able to find my weapon. Or a rocket would come in and I wouldn't be able to find my weapon. And I can remember there was one incident where one morning I was sleeping in a tent. This is before we were not allowed to sleep under soft surfaces at the combat outposts. Right. I was sleeping in a tent and uh, the Taliban decided to kick off uh, a attack against us by firing an RPG... Lobbing an RPG into our camp, it went through the tent above me, through the tent directly above the head of my friend Chris and lodged itself in the Hesco bastion. So the Talib hadn't pulled the fuse for the detonator of the rocket, only for like the charge, like to get it there, the propellant, right? Right. So it didn't explode. Uh, But they started firing like small arms immediately. And I was, Chris and I had to get to the lav because we had one lav. And we would pull that baby out every single time they decided to fire at us. Because, you know, you've got a better set of optics. uh, You know, you've got like a mounted C6. You get 25 millimeter if they come at you with hard targets. So this particular morning, I rolled out of bed. There's, There's... Dust outside, being kicked up from guys running around and from small arms fire coming in, and I could hear Scott Shipway, our uh, our um, one of our sergeants, screaming and yelling for Chris and I to get our asses in the lab and. So I roll under my bed to go and look, and I realize that my kit's not there because I went on patrol the night before, so I left my kit outside. So I have to fight through all this dust to try and find my kit while guys are running around because I need my weapon. Oh,
1: man, it's so like it's, your worst nightmare. It's your
0: absolute worst nightmare. Like nothing is where it's supposed to be. You right. feel so unprepared. You're right. working your ass off to try and get there. Right. And then on top of that, I got to climb in the front of the lab. There's small arms fired Pinging off the front of it, right. these guys get to go in the back to get into, you know, the crew commander and gunner position. But I have to get into the driver's hatch. Yeah. So it was absolute and sheer panic. But like that incident was like the thing, like that started, yeah. PTSD with me.
1: Yeah, I can just imagine me in your shoes and be like oh god i look so dumb i look so dumb I nobody so could dumb.
0: see me that's the great thing about it. Is, oh, okay. but I, but there's st- i still had somebody waiting on me right right so until you, until you get to the lab and you fire the comms up and hear the people screaming at you yeah in the back like so i still have those dreams i just don't have the emotional hangover from it but i mean like as we as the podcast unfolds we can
1: talk oh i didn't know that
0: you yeah. still had those dreams i do
1: um, okay, so you're having these dreams, you're dealing with these themes uh, in some unhealthy ways. Uh, I can't imagine your energies really great at this time.
0: No, I was not very active either. I hear a lot of people like to get into physical activity to try and you know burn some of this off. I was not interested in it. I think that I kind of rejected it when I first got back. And a lot of army guys do. Yeah, it's like I, I got up at five o'clock every day to go for a run. You know, yeah. I'm, I don't want to do that anymore. Plus, yeah. I was in good shape. Yeah. So I didn't feel like I needed to keep that up, but my energy was super low, uh, definitely. Yeah. But I had this insatiable urge to succeed. Like, I feel like I was driven by my PTSD. So that was kind of offset by the fact that I felt like I had seven or eight guys, you know, 10 guys that had died. And that the sheer weight of that loss of potential uh, really weighed heavily on me. And I felt like I had to achieve for them to do right by them.
1: Yeah, it sounds kind of like uh, survivor's guilt. It definitely sounds like
0: survivor's guilt.
1: So what about your hobbies and your interests and your passions at this time? Were you still doing
0: everything that you loved to do? Was it tainted? I had been writing songs while I was overseas, so I put together like a group of guys and started playing in a band and wrote like the first album about how I was feeling, right? And it's funny now I go back and I listen to those lyrics and like I was definitely trying to warn myself of how my life was going, right? right. And I'm I'm really glad that you started that band because
1: well number one you were a god on stage, Matt, and Thanks. uh <laughs> So people know Matt has just the most beautiful singing voice.
0: You should check us out, actually. Uh, we've got four albums on iTunes and uh, probably where you got this podcast. We're, We're called Hearts and Minds. Definitely editing that out. No I'm
1: um, just
0: kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, you're still dealing with PTSD today. I think we should make that clear. Sure. I mean, not to the same extent that I dealt with it before, but I right. I think that I probably deal more with like just general anxiety than I do with the with the hard effects of PTSD.
1: Right. I mean, it's definitely not what it once was. But no. Really what, uh What does a bad day still look like
0: to you? I ha- well, I have to say that like I've been through you know cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, through um, exposure therapy. So a bad day today looks a lot better than a bad day, you know, three years ago. Uh, a bad day today for me, um, probably starts, uh, with something happening that I don't have any control over, uh, which, you know, truncates my plans or makes the time that I have to get ready for something or to prepare for something shorter so I feel more anxiety about it. Mm-hmm. So I think that a, a real bad day would be just me being in a bad mood because I feel anxious about trying to get everything done that I need to do and putting a lot of added pressure on myself. Yeah. Uh, and then just generally becoming negative about other things because of the anxiety that I feel. That's a far cry from how what a bad day would have looked like you know, f- four years ago, but that's what a bad day looks like now.
1: And what is this anxiety like how does it come out like your heart rate's up definitely
0: You're. what are you sweating like what what sometimes like yeah. it feels like your head's in a vice yeah uh, that people have all of these expectations of you and that they just keep piling them on and you have no idea you know, how you're going to accomplish all of those things. And then if somebody decides to pile one more thing on top of that, like you feel like you're close to breaking. Yeah. You're in punch faces mode. Exactly. Punchy McPuncherson. Yeah. You start to get a little snide and maybe uh, rude. It took you a long time to really get to the
1: the source of what was bothering you. I know that you've yeah. been seeing uh, somebody for, for a while, but... Even then, you you recently, for fairly recently, had uh, an epiphany that you weren't actually doing everything that you needed to do.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I saw the same uh, same psychologist for uh, you know six years, and I had him convinced and me convinced that there was such a breadth and depth of anxiety that was caused by my tour that there was no specific incident that we could really work on. Right. Uh, so he would just like you know teach me the tools to deal with it. Um, I was lying to myself and lying to him because, and and I think that he was probably afraid to dig into it a little bit deeper uh, because I was doing so well, because I was like acing school, because I was working two jobs, because I kept up a good relationship, because I had lots of friends, uh, you know, because I kept a small dog alive. Like all of the things, like I was being successful as a human being, but just like Pressing this like anxious hate diamond in my chest. Sound like a World War II vet. You know what I mean? <laughs> On yeah. On the
1: outside, you are just killing it. You're
0: everything's you great.
1: going. You got a white picket fence. Yes. A dog and a lovely '50s wife and a house. While
0: coming. And soon. she goes to bed at 10:30, and then I drink a half a bottle of rye by myself <laughs> in the basement. Like we can laugh about it now, but that's a real scenario. Yeah. Like that's something that used to happen. What worked for you was what? Exposure therapy is what fixed me, basically, or helped. Are you still doing that? It's like a phase of your treatment, right? right. So, so you're past that phase. Yeah, mine, I think, was 45 days long. Okay. And that's when you expose yourself in the greatest amount of detail possible to the incident that caused your PTSD uh, and relive it in full over and over and over again for 45 minutes every single day until you don't have any further subjective units of distress. Like, you don't feel like you're distressed anymore when you read it. It just becomes a story.
1: What's your life like now? My life is pretty good now.
0: Uh, I feel like I'm in a place
1: where... I mean, from the outside, everything looks great for you. Like, just as an observer, you're, you know, successful at work... You have a lovely wife, you have two i guess some people would call them dogs um, <laughs> <laughs> you know and and you're i mean I've always been a big fan of yours you're you're always like a happy guy, a funny guy and And uh, to me, you know, it's it's been improvements, but you know, because you hid so much, it's not as massive a change. It's not like you were ever extremely depressed, like I know I know a lot of people have been. But uh, is is the outside match the inside?
0: I can say that probably for the first time in about ten years, the outside does match the inside, which is nice. Um, I think that. before you're, you kind of look like a duck, like you're calm on top and you're furiously paddling underneath to try and keep yourself up. Whereas now I feel like I'm in a much better place, uh, where you know I'll try and find my friends that are struggling and try to help them along. Right. Though,
1: I just want to make it clear, you know, when we decided to make this podcast, one of the first things, one of the most important things, we decided was that we're not here to tell people what to do. No. Um we kind of have an idea in general of what other vets are going through because you know we've gone through it ourselves but um we can't tell you what to do we can only tell you what's working for us and for Matt specifically and it's going to be different for everyone so we're just here to talk about our experiences and how we feel and what we think and there's no way there's
0: no way we're gonna tell uh, you what to do. No, you need to find that for yourself because you need to do it for yourself and you need to find your own way. So, Matt, what motivates you to
1: keep going, to you know, be successful, to to move
0: forward? I think now um, the amount of people that I know that are struggling with mental health issues, PTSD specifically, outweighs the amount of friends that I have that died in combat. So when I first got back, I was really motivated by the loss of potential of the people, like these bright stars that were snuffed out far too early. Now I'm driven, I think, by the guys that are struggling and having a tough time. I want to show a positive example of like, there is another way other than sitting in your basement and drinking, um, yourself to death. Basically. Uh, I think what motivates me now is, uh, showing that positive example and, uh, trying to help people out along the way. Matt, are you a member of the Legion? It's funny that you asked that question. Uh, I am not a member of Legion. And why not? I don't feel that in their current structure that the Legion caters to young vets like me. Why not? I don't think that the Legion provides the community that it once did for, for veterans. Um, I think that it's an organization that's been taken over by civilians, uh, and I don't feel like they represent my interests. I think that the current way the Legion is set up is part of the problem.
1: That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week when Matt will turn the tables and interview me. If you have any questions for Matt or myself, you can reach us at info at VeteranX.ca. We're also on Facebook at VeteranX or online at VeteranX.ca.